If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better. And dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Over the last 500 years of Western art, women have created some incredible self-portraits, pushing boundaries, embracing self-expression, and revealing insights about the societies they lived in. This is a story chronicled by the art critic Jennifer Higgy in her new book, The Mirror and the Palette. And I spoke to Jennifer about some of her favourite self-portraits, why it was an art form embraced by women, and how a simple smile could be so transgressive. Your new book, The Mirror and the Palette, looks at women's self-portraits over the last 500 years of Western art. So why is it self-portraits in particular that are really intriguing to you, um, especially from a gendered perspective, over other forms of art and other artistic subjects? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, one of the really interesting things about self-portraits is that if you have yourself and you have a mirror and you have a palette, then you can paint yourself. But throughout history, I mean, really until the late 19th, early 20th century, women were barred from uh, art academies. 
They were barred from the life drawing room. They weren't allowed to be apprentices. Many of the women artists of the past, um, their fathers were artists, and that's how they had access to a studio and to training. And so because they had basically no political agency and they were barred from so many um, ways of learning their craft, they turned to themselves. And this is why um, so many women of the past painted self-portraits, because basically they were the the only model that they had access to. So they were a lot more open to women than other forms of art might have been? Well, yes, because they were allowed to paint themselves in a way that they weren't necessarily, say, allowed to paint um, a male model in a studio because they weren't, you know, they would have needed to be chaperoned and essentially they weren't allowed to go to art school. If they had access to a mirror, and actually that's really interesting as well because mirrors didn't become sort of in wide circulation until the 19th century, But if they did have access to a mirror, then they could look at themselves and they could paint themselves. And there wasn't a great tradition of of self-portraits really until modernity um, because most artists of the past, it was a job and and they worked on commissions. So very few, Mm. you know, you wouldn't have the Medici's commissioning someone to do a self-portrait. They'd rather have, you know, commission you to to paint a saint or to paint a large history painting. So it did become um, a really interesting area for women to explore that really wasn't painted um, by so many men. There there were a few very famous self-portraits. For for example, in the 15th, 16th and 17th centuries, you've got people like um, Dürer, who was an amazing, you know, brilliant German um, artist who did many self-portraits and uh, uh, Michelangelo painted himself in in one painting as a little cartoon, as a flayed skin, actually, in one of his frescoes. And and there are so, and Jan van Eyck painted a self-portrait. But the men tended to paint themselves in quite heroic ways. They painted themselves mm-hmm. in a sort of saint-like or Christ-like manner. But women tended to paint themselves with an easel, working, as if they were saying, I may be a woman, but I'm allowed to work and this is what I can do. That point that you raise about um, working to commission leads me on to something that I was really intrigued by, about what women's motivations have been to paint self-portrait down the years. Because, as you say, has it always just been a means of self-expression rather than a commercial um, enterprise? Mm. I mean, I think we have to be very careful about uh, assuming too much about um artists from hundreds of years ago if they didn't write why they were doing it all we all we have to go on essentially is the paintings but once you know more about the sort of cultural and political context that these paintings were made on I mean I tend to see them uh on on lots of levels on one it's it's you know these women wanted to be artists and and self-portraits gave them a way in um but also I do tend to see it as even in the quietest and most sort of um, virginal of self-portraits, because many women of the past had to prove that they were also virtuous women as well as being an artist because, you know, they had the taint of bohemia about them. And um, and so I, I tend to think that um, a lot of these women were saying, look, I'm a woman and I can be an artist despite everything that's flung at me to, you know, stop me fulfilling my ambition in this way. My book actually opens with um, a really fascinating self-portrait from 1548 by a young Flemish artist called Katharina van Hemmersen. And her father was an artist. So she had access to a studio and we assume access to a mirror because often there were only mirrors in studios um, if, unless you were an aristocrat and you had access to, you know, fancy things like mirrors. And she sat down when she was 20 and she painted this rather small, slightly clumsy little self-portrait at the easel. And she writes above it, 
Uh, I, Katerina van Hemmersen, painted this in 1548 at the age of 20. And what's really fascinating about this, it's the first painting that we know of by anyone of any gender that was um, a self-portrait at the easel of someone actually painting. And, you know, it's extraordinary to think of at a time now when, you know, young women are doing selfies hundreds of times a day often, (laughs) you know, how long this self-portrait must have taken her. Um, Mm. that she painted herself working, that literally no other artist we know of had had done before. And she's only 20 years old. You know, it's a really, and it's a very small little painting and it's in, it's in Basel now and it's, it's wonderful. So of course you mentioned that's the first self-portrait that we have of any artist at an easel. Mm. But do we have any earlier self-portraits by women that we're aware of or perhaps there are stories of, even if they don't survive anymore? The existence of pre-modern women artists, it wasn't suddenly something that was miraculously discovered in the last hundred years. So although scarce women's creativity has in fact been um, noted since the beginning of written history. And uh, this was something that I didn't know about before I started researching my book. And it was so fascinating. The, The Roman historian Pliny the Elder, who just as an interesting aside, he died in Pompeii in AD 79. But um, he asserted that the art of painting even originated with a woman. Um, in his natural history, he, he recounts how the sculptor Butides of Corinth discovered that portraiture, um, discovered portraiture around 650 BC, um, thanks to his daughter Cora, um, who he writes, being deeply in love with a young man about to depart on a long journey, she traced the profile of his face as thrown upon the wall by the light of the lamp. And so she traced this, and this is we, we think, one of the first um, portraits. But in terms of self-portraits, um, the earliest mention is in the late 12th or early 13th century, the German illuminated Clarissia depicted herself in a wide sleeve dress swinging from the letter Q, like a trapeze artist in an illuminated manuscript. Which is a fantastic image, and I would I would urge everyone to go and Google it now because it's it's so joyous, isn't it? Exactly, and it's really cheeky. You know, it's, you know, we've got this, you know, how many, that's seven, eight, eight hundred years ago. And she has painted herself swinging like, as if from a trapeze off the letter. And you can almost hear her laughter over the centuries that have passed since. And and it's a wonderfully bold sort of self-portrait for someone so long ago when women, you know, were really marginalised. Um, and then we have, um, what we if we leap forward to the 14th century, Um, There's a very interesting book uh, that was written by Giovanni Boccaccio, and he wrote um, a collection of 104 historical and mythical biographies, which was titled Concerning Famous Women. Um, And it's the first book in Western literature devoted to the achievements of women, because, of course, in, in the Middle Ages, in the main craftspeople, whether they were illuminators or, you know, building a church, they weren't given names, so it's very hard to have access to the names of these people. And so Boccaccio... Um, actually names them. Um, And in his book, uh, he includes the earliest representation of a woman painting her self-portrait. And um, a French version of the book from 1402 includes this very beautiful ink and colour parchment illustration, and it's called Marsha Painting Her Self-Portrait. And so that's the first representation of a woman actually painting her self-portrait that we know of. I just want to circle back to something you were talking about earlier um, with the Katerina um, self-portrait, which is just about the way in which women have uh, represented themselves in images that they've created of themselves. Obviously, if we kind of go back in the past, we had a time when 
what you put in a portrait said a lot about you. So what you were holding, what you were stood in front of, what you were wearing, all had coded meanings that we might not necessarily understand today. Um, what are some of the coded meanings that, that women included in portraits about themselves to convey messages about themselves? Um, well, probably the earliest ones, the main thing that they had to get across, because to be a woman artist, you know, hundreds of years ago was such an unusual thing. They had to um, really make clear that they were also virtuous women. And so often they um, show themselves painting, say, a Madonna to show that they're religious. Um, even when they were aristocratic, often they portrayed themselves without any jewels to show that they were modest. Um, sometimes they painted themselves in black to show how serious they were. And actually, the Italian artist, Sofonisba Anguissola, who was the um, most prolific self-portraitist between um, Dürer and Rembrandt, she often depicted herself wearing black because male painters tended to wear black. And so she's sort of saying, well, look, I can, I can, I'm up there with the best of them, with the men, you know, I'm like a man, I can paint like men. Um, also, some of them depict what is known as a mal stick, which is a long stick that when you're painting, you use it to balance your hand if you need to do intricate details so that you can rest your hand on it to do the intricate details. Um, some of them included a mal stick to show that they were, you know, very serious professional artists who used all the tricks that were available. But then Sofonisba, who was an absolute virtuoso, in later self-portraits, she never included a mild stick because we can assume that she's saying, I was too good for a mild stick. I didn't need the help of these props. <laughs> her her self-portraits, again, we're going to be saying this a lot throughout this interview, but are, are ones I would really urge people to seek out because they're just incredibly beautiful, aren't they? When we're talking about hidden meanings, you show that even, say, like the, the gaze in a self-portrait could have a hidden meaning. So you demonstrate this with the 17th century portrait of a woman called Mary Beale. Can you just mm. explain how the gaze conveys a message or could convey a message in that portrait? Oh, yeah. Well, Mary Beale is really fascinating because she was um, the second um, woman we know of who worked as a professional artist in, in um, Britain. And um, she was born during the Civil War. Um, she had a very supportive husband who helped manage her studio. Um, she also um, was the first woman, actually, uh, to write anything about art. And she wrote um, a wonderful short piece on how to paint apricots. But anyway, all of that aside, um, she does, she, she was a really prolific self-portraitist. And um, in one of her best-known self-portraits, it's actually a diptych. So it's two paintings. There's her, she's shown with the tools of her trade, looking out at the world. And then it's it's accompanied by another portrait that she made of her husband. And her husband is gazing at Mary Beale. And so if you see these two paintings on the wall, in a sense, she's reversed the gender expectations of 17th century Britain, because the man is looking at her, she's the breadwinner, and she's looking out at us with the tools of her trade. So she's saying, I'm the worker here, I support my family. And my husband, my beloved husband, is actually in a slightly minor role here, because he's gazing at me adoringly. It's a very subtle power move, that, isn't it? It is. It is. <laughs> <laughs> While we're talking about facial expressions, you have a chapter on the smile. And some of the, the portraits in that in that chapter are, are really captivating um, because of the smiles in them. Um, I was intrigued to read about how smiling in a portrait could be quite a transgressive act. And was that especially the case for women or was that kind of um, regardless of gender? 
Well, I love the story of of the smile, actually, in in 17th and 18th century painting in Europe. Um, Because in Holland, it was really common to depict people smiling and laughing. We've got Judith Judith Leister, who was a brilliant um, self-portraitist, and she depicts herself almost laughing at the easel. She's having so much fun. She was born in 1609. But in France, we've got um, the French court, which is obviously extremely rigid, and Louis XVI had really rotten teeth. And so it wasn't done, apparently, to smile around him because he was so self-conscious of his teeth, he never smiled, and he didn't want other people showing off their beautiful teeth. And so to even to depict yourself in a painting smiling was, was seen as insulting the king because essentially you were saying that you had a much better set of teeth than, than he did. And so it became um, a sort of mark of seriousness that there was no levity in the paintings, that they were very serious, that people would look out um, at the world in a very sort of serious way. And if, if, if there was even the slightest smile, then you wouldn't show the teeth. So to show the teeth was considered very radical. And then we have this wonderful painter, um, Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun, and she steps in. She was a really remarkable painter. She was um, Marie Antoinette's favourite painter. She was very beautiful. By all accounts, she had really great teeth. And she was also a sort of very wily self-promoter. And so she very famously depicted herself holding her small daughter, Julie, and smiling broadly, teeth included. And it was absolutely scandalous. It was, you know, there were there were editorials written in the papers that she had no shave, that, you know, it was licentious. They were basically, you know, saying that she had no morals, but she knew exactly what she was doing because she knew the rules of the game very well. And of course, she became very famous and everyone wanted to be painted by her because her paintings were so charming. And she ended up painting herself smiling over and over again, actually. There's something... Um, that seems kind of bizarrely contemporary when you look at the portraits from that era of people smiling because they're so unusual. There's something that really strikes you about them, isn't there? Um, If we're talking about transgressive acts, something that I definitely wanted to ask you about was nudity. And I think that we're all incredibly familiar with seeing female nudes in galleries. But somehow female nude self-portraits are a different matter and, and feel much more of a revolutionary act. When do they first emerge? Yeah. Well, the first woman we know of to paint nudes, and these were placed in a very mythical setting, was Lavinia Fontana, who was a brilliant Renaissance painter. But um, because she filtered these images of naked women through the myth, through the lens of myth and legend, um, she could sort of get away with it. Because, you know, if you're painting a nymph and it's set in ancient Greece, then somehow it's not nearly as licentious. And if you're depicting yourself in a contemporary way. And so really the first person to paint herself herself naked and be absolutely blatant about the fact that it was a self-portrait was the very great German painter, uh, Paula Modersen Becker. And she painted herself in around 1909 and she painted herself repeatedly naked. Um, And actually one of her first um, self-portraits that is very famous. She depicts herself on her sixth wedding anniversary and she actually looks pregnant. She's seen sort of, it's a three-quarter length self-portrait. All she's wearing is a string of beads. She's cradling her pregnant belly, but she wasn't actually pregnant at this time. She had um, decided to leave her husband 
um, Otto Modersen, who was also a painter. She came to Paris. She was living alone. She was absolutely broke. She was doing lots of self-portraits because she couldn't afford a, a life model. And she paints herself pregnant, not with a child, but almost with her future life as an artist because she's dedicating herself to her art. And very sadly, she was actually to die in childbirth um, in her early 30s, which was absolutely tragic. But um, yeah, so she painted this very radical self-portrait on her sixth wedding anniversary as if she were pregnant, but she wasn't. Yeah, when you see that portrait, it does seem very forward-thinking and very radical for for the early, the very early 20th century. How did it how did it go down? What was the response like? Well, sadly, there was very little response because she only had two exhibitions in her life. Both of them were group shows. Uh, the first show was absolutely eviscerated and then ignored. And the second show, a small group show in Berlin, um, which didn't include any of her nudes, wasn't even reviewed. So this absolutely brilliant artist who, you know, in uh, turn of the century France, around 1905 to 1910, she is she is painting paintings that are as radical and as good as Matisse and Picasso, to my mind. But she doesn't have any outlet. She doesn't have a gallery. She has very little money. She's forced to return to her husband in Forbspeter in Germany. Um, and as I mentioned, she died in childbirth. So she had great posthumous fame. And it's it's absolutely heartbreaking reading her story. Although I must say she did leave a life, she did live live her life full of joy and, and possibility and creativity. So um, she was also best friends with um, the poet Rilke and actually when she died he wrote an absolutely eviscerating um, eulogy um, honouring honoring her life and death and, and basically saying I accuse men of her the fact that she was never lauded in her lifetime Still to come on the History Extra podcast And so it's really wonderful I think that um, uh, great museums that are looking at their collections, looking at the stories that um, had been very much overlooked, shamefully overlooked, and trying to redress it. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply 
Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. I think female needs are, are really intriguing because, as I say, we're so used to seeing a very certain type of female body portrayed in the nude in galleries, primarily by male artists. I just uh, wanted to ask you about the, the female self-portraits that have gone against that standard template that we see. So you, you talk about um, a portrait by Alice Neal, um, who was, which was a self-portrait, a nude self-portrait of her at 80 years old. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that portrait yeah, particularly. This is, yeah, this is an absolutely brilliant self-portrait. So Alice Neal was born in 1900. She's an American artist. Um, she, one of the great portraitists of any era. Um, she led a life until really her 70s of great poverty um, and difficulty. Um, she had uh, two children who she struggled to bring up. She was very poor. Uh, she was often in abusive relationships. Uh, she lived in New York and she painted her neighbours. She had a, she had an eye of extraordinary sort of compassion and understanding to, to, to those who were down on their luck. Um, she painted... Um, street hustlers, she painted uh, drug addicts, she painted pregnant women, she painted her neighbours, she painted her children. Um, and when she became famous via the cover of Time magazine when she was 70, when she painted Gloria Steinem, um, suddenly she was painting Andy Warhol, you know, so she she had uh, a good, you know, just over a decade of, of being famous for her portraits. But she never really painted self-portraits. Um, she did a few when she was young, but then she always cast her gaze on other people. And then when she was 80, um, she finally finished this self-portrait that she'd been working on for five years. And she said she found it incredibly difficult to paint herself because she was so used to looking at other people. Um, as mentioned, she was 80 years old. She paints herself naked in the chair that she normally put her subjects. Um, you know, and she's absolutely unflinching about her aging body and her swelling belly and her drooping breasts. And But she's fierce. She's got her glasses mm. on as if she's, you know, really wants to look at herself absolutely clearly. She's holding a paintbrush. And um, it's a wonderfully um, vivid, life-affirming portrait of someone really at the height of her powers at the age of 80. And uh, it's, it's a wonderfully and recognisably, you know, famous painting now. You also have a chapter on surrealism, which takes the female self-portrait into a whole new directions. How did it open up new avenues for the ways that women wanted to represent themselves or their interior lives? Well, surrealism is really fascinating, actually, because, um, I mean, there are a lot of revisionist histories now acknowledging the role of women in surrealism. But in the first exhibitions of surrealism, it was mainly men. Um, André Breton, um, the French writer, he wrote the Manifesto of Surrealism, which was very male-centred. It was very white, very male, very straight. So despite, you know, its honouring of the unconscious, it was actually quite rigid in its definitions of creativity. And there were so many brilliant um, women artists, actually, who were 
I mean, in a, many of them bridled at the term surrealism because they saw it as a sort of male invention in terms of the term, whereas people like Frida Kahlo and Leonora Carrington and many others, they were making these. They, it, was as if they, it was as if they were born surrealists. You know, they were, they were born painting their, their dreams, their visions themselves. And in that sense, surrealism, um, as it became an accepted genre of art, really gave women permission to explore quite transgressive um, ways of representing themselves. Um, you know, you look at Frida Kahlo, obviously one of the most famous self-portraitists, and she painted herself again and again and again, you know, in her bed as someone who was injured and damaged. And But she also painted herself in a very celebratory way. You know, she painted herself with monkeys on her shoulders and, and um, garlanded in flowers and in wild um, environments. She painted all of the heartbreak and the celebrations of her life. Um, so surrealism really allowed women, it sort of gave women permission to paint themselves however they saw fit. So there was no longer the sort of rather puritanical rules that had existed beforehand, you know, when, as I mentioned earlier, when women had to prove that they were virtuous. That was definitely out the window now. Frida Kahlo is a good example of what one of the women in your book that painted several self-portraits throughout their lives, which can provide quite an interesting way of, of tracing not only their life, but also their artistic development. Who are some of the other women that you can see, you could, for example, line up all their self-portraits and you'd see something very different at the start than at the end? Mm. I mean, you definitely see that with Sofonisba Anguissola, the great Renaissance um, artist. And she painted her earlier self-portraits when she was still a teenager, actually. And um, her latest ones, her, I think her last one was she was around 80. And, you know, she again, she really scrutinises herself and the ageing process. And there's absolutely nothing in her self-portraits that is... Um, vain or idealised. And also, if we leap, we leap forward a few centuries to um, an artist such as Suzanne Valadon, who's one of my absolute favourites. And she was born um, in France in 1865. And she actually became very famous as a model before she became a painter herself. Um, it's very interesting looking at the women involved in Impressionism, which is the movement that she's really associated with. And most of the other ones, like um, Marie Cassatt and Bertha Morisot, they were actually very um, wealthy women. They were they came from very supportive, well-off families. But that also meant that they were constantly chaperoned, that they didn't have a lot of personal freedom in terms of when they were growing up. But Suzanne Volodon was born as an illegitimate child to a, a washerwoman who moved to Montmartre to escape from her village when she had the shame of having this illegitimate child. And she ran riot from pretty much as soon as she could walk. She was given the full reign of Montmartre. She was in and out of cafes. She was she was working as a waitress, a wreath maker, a, an acrobat. And then at a tender age, she became uh, a life model. And she became one of the best known, if not the best known, model in France at the turn of the century. And she was the star of some of the era's most famous paintings. Um, she was the star of Puviste de Chavannes, The Grove Sacred to the Arts and Muses, uh, Renoir's The Large Bathers, um, The Dance at Bougieville and Girl Braiding Her Hair. And um, she also modelled for Toulouse-Lautrec's The Hangover. And she was a really good friend of Toulouse-Lautrec. So we tend to think that, or you can assume, I think, that she and Toulouse-Lautrec often shared hangovers. So he depicted her in quite a realistic way. But anyway, she never went to art school. 
She didn't get any training except when she was modeling, she was looking at what the artists were doing and she started doing it herself. And so she started off, like so many of these artists, doing self-portraits because, again, she had access to a mirror and a palette and she could look at herself. So she did, um, it was quite interesting actually because her her earliest self-portraits, she looks quite prim and she was the least prim of, prim of people. You know, she was a, a real wild child. And... Um, and so she depicts herself with her, you know, in quite a modest dress with her hair pulled back. And then she led the most amazing life. Degas was the first person to buy some of her work. Um, she she ran off with her son's best friend who was 21 years younger than her. She went from rags to riches and then rags again. Um, she she was extremely flamboyant. Like she, when she did have money, she used to tip train drivers and she sent the butcher's wife on a holiday to the Riviera and, and uh, you know, she was, she was really marvellous. But when she got older, she, again, depicted herself um, with a really sort of raw self-scrutiny. And she was someone who'd been an absolutely famous beauty when she was young. But, you know, in her 60s, she depicts herself as quite haggard with her bare drooping breasts, um, looking quite um, irritated with the world. You know, she 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 was never one to idealise herself or other women. And um, it's really wonderful looking at um, the sort of evolution of her life through her self-portraits. Mm-hmm. As well as looking at the evolution of people's lives through portraits, you talk about how we can use portraits to to reveal a, something about society and the societies that these artists were living in. Um, who were some of the women artists that used self-portraits to make statements about issues like race, nationhood, society? I mean, it's a great question because I think every painting, um, every self-portrait is, to varying degrees, a kind of coded um, representation of the time in which it was made, you know, from these earlier self-portraits where women had to depict themselves as virtuous, which is obviously saying something about the time that they live in. But then when you move forward sort of into the beginnings of um, modernity. Um, For example, if you look at the really brilliant um, African-American artist, Louis Melu Jones, who was born in um, 1905, um, and she was a really uh, extraordinary artist. You know, it's hard enough to be a woman artist and to be born as a black woman artist in, in America in the early 20th century, where we have obviously the most horrific forms of white supremacy dominating um, the discourse. You know, she she made, uh, she had an extraordinary career. She um, went uh, through art schools and then university. She got a scholarship to France and she had a really amazing time in France, actually. And she writes about how, you know, for the first time she didn't, she didn't experience racism on a, on a daily basis. And she paints a really wonderful um, self-portrait in 1940 where she depicts herself at the easel. You know, she's already 35. Um, she depicts herself. You can't see what she's painting. So you see, it's as if we're looking from behind the easel to her. And around this time, she was becoming very interested in um, uh, black black politics and in the Harlem Renaissance, especially, where there was, um, it was a, a very powerful movement that went sort of on and off for around 30 years in New York that was about um, black pride. It was about exploring a black cultural heritage. In this self-portrait, Louis Melu Jones depicts herself 
um, at her easel painting herself. We can't see the painting that she's painting, but she's surrounded by sort of, it's it's almost like a dreamlike um, atmosphere that she has. And in the very back of her studio, we can see these small um, uh, traditional African figurines. And it was a time that she was really beginning to question that, you know, so many um, white artists in modernity, such as Picasso and Braque and, you know, so many of the artists in Paris, especially where she was training, um, had used um, African uh, motifs in their work. And often it was a very kind of unwitting form of racism because they there was this dreadful term, primitivism, where which was um, referencing African sculptures. And these artists really admired how raw and expressive and unusual they were without often looking at the origins or the traditional or sacred meanings of these works. They were appropriated in a very unthinking way. And so Lois Maley Jones, as a a young black artist, is including these motives in her work um, as if she's saying, this is my heritage, I am allowed to use these motives. And, you know, I have far greater permission than Picasso, say, to to use these images. And then she didn't do many self-portraits, but then she spent the rest of her long life really doing extraordinary work, not only in her own um, artworks exploring her heritage, but also she travelled really widely throughout Africa, to, um, speaking and doing speaking to lots of um, artists in you know so many countries. I c- couldn't possibly list them all now, and taking photographs and and honouring the work of artists in Africa. So throughout this conversation, I imagine that a lot of listeners will have paused the podcast at points, googled an image, and then c- tuned back in, but to to finish up, I wonder if you could nominate a couple of your personal favourite portraits that you look at in the book. So not necessarily the most groundbreaking, not necessarily the most avant-garde, but just ones that really appeal to you personally. Say three that everybody who's listened to this should go away and look up. I mean, it's very difficult to choose three <laughs> mm. um, because in a way my book is is a very idiosyncratic um, selection. You know, I'm it's in no way encyclopedic of the last 500 years of self-portraits. Really, I've chosen um, artists and works that I really love. But if I had to choose three, maybe leaping across centuries, I'm going to start with Artemisia Gentileschi, um, uh, La Pittura, which is a self-portrait she did in 1638. And she actually made this picture in London. And she was a great um, Baroque uh, painter from Rome. And, um, you know, there was actually a really brilliant exhibition of hers um, in 2020 at the National Gallery in London. It's one of the few um, exhibitions that they've devoted to a woman artist, actually amazing. And she did some really amazing self-portraits. And in this self-portrait, she shows herself, um, she's using uh, the language of the time, which was an iconography that painters had to basically use in in the 17th century. They had to follow these rules of, you know, if you are doing a self-portrait, you have to include this, 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 and this. And she includes a lot of these um, elements, but she also the very fact that she's a woman painting herself in a very active way. She doesn't look out at the viewer. She's too busy working. We can't really see what she's working at. It's incredibly active as a painting. You know, it's like you can almost feel her sweating and and sighing as she's working really hard on this painting. And it's just a brilliant, it's in the Royal Collection actually now, and it's actually one of the most beautiful self-portraits you could look at. Um, Then I'm going to go to maybe the great Welsh painter, Gwen John, 
And Gwen John is really one of my favourites. And um, during her lifetime, she was rather over overshadowed by her brother, Augustus John, who was a huge character and dominated um, a, a lot of the painting discourse in, in the UK in the early 20th century. But Gwen John was, she was an absolutely extraordinary painter. And in 1902, she paints a self-portrait. That is, uh, it's now in the Tate Gallery. Um, and it's just a wonderfully... Um, she shows herself as a very self-contained uh, person. She's looking directly out. She obviously loves fashion. She's painted, she's spent a lot of time working on the details of her rather fabulous clothes. Um, she looks stern, but there's something about her that has a bit of a twinkle in the eye. You know, so she's she's at once, she's looking proper, as a woman had to look proper in 1902, but there's also something of the bohemian about her. And I think it's a it's a portrait that is full of suggestion in a way. And then I'm going to leap to the other side of the world and to Rita Angus, one of the most brilliant um, artists produced by New Zealand. And in 1951, uh, Rita Angus, she portrayed herself um, as something of um, a goddess. The painting is called Rutu, which is sort of like a um, Polynesian take on her name, um, Rita. She depicts herself as a combination of European and Polynesian elements. She has a halo behind her head, but then she has fishes on her collar. And the fishes could, um, she was a Pisces, so they might be referring to that, and also the Christian idea of, of fishes. But she depicts herself also in a very um, Polynesian environment. There's the blue sea behind her. Um, there's uh, native plants. And so it's a sort of wonderful combination of, of European modernism and um, a sort of uh, the kind of modernism that was blooming in the South Seas in, in Australia and New Zealand at the time where, where artists were grappling with um, Indigenous cultures and the influence of Indigenous cultures on European painting and also in their self-expression in this in this land. So you mentioned there, obviously, the, the massive 2020 Artemisia exhibition at the National. Do you think that there is a reassessment happening recently of women's self-portraits and perhaps some of these artists are going to get more attention than they previously have or received in their lifetime? Or do Absolutely. you think that that's still something that we are working towards? Look, I think it's something that everyone is still working towards. Um, you know, I, I saw a big show of Italian art in, in um, Florence only two years ago and it included no women. I think it had one woman artist in, you know, hundreds. So it's still prevalent that women are excluded from the discourse. But I think most great museums now are recognising that the history of art was in, in a sense written by white men about other white men and that that is a very limited way of telling this incredibly rich story and women have always made art and so in the same way that the National Gallery had an exhibition of Artemisia um, last year the Prado in Madrid for example in its 200 year history it, it only had the second ever exhibition of women artists and that was a, a joint exhibition of the great Sofonisba um, Anguissola and Lavinia Fontana, because Sofonisba Anguissola had actually worked at the court of Philip II in Madrid. So there was a, a Spanish connection there. And, um, you know, at the Royal Academy, for example, in London, which has a really shameful history of excluding women, um, it's having a big Rita Angus show, who I just mentioned um, later this year. And so it's really wonderful, I think, that um, uh, great museums that are looking at their collections, looking at the stories that um, had been very much overlooked, shamefully overlooked, and trying to redress it. 
That was Jennifer Higgy. Her book, The Mirror and the Palette, is on sale now, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. If you're interested in finding out more about the extraordinary life of the Renaissance painter Artemisia Gentileschi, who we discussed in this podcast, I spoke to Catherine Fletcher about her for a previous episode. Just search in our back catalogue for Artemisia. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for the latest episode in our Bayer Tapestry series. <laughs>